You are tuning in to the inaugural episode of the Anatomy of Resistance, where we the people won and why. This is Anthony Grimes with my co-host, world-renowned scholar and author, dear friend Erica Chenoweth. Erica's book with Maria Stefan, Why Civil Resistance Works, The Strategic Logic of Nonviolent Conflict, has quickly become an essential tool for the activist toolkit. In the coming episodes of this podcast, Eric and I will break down successful moments of resistance and discuss what happened, and most of all, what inspiration and lessons might be helpful for everyday life. Our hope, especially under this inhumane presidential administration, is that through these discussions, we can all innovate the process of resistance to increase our collective effectiveness. The next 1,459 days of the Trump administration will be 1,459 days of resistance. Resistance on the ground, resistance in the classrooms, resistance on the job, resistance in our art and in our music. This is just the beginning. What we just heard was Angela Davis speaking at the Women's March in Washington, D.C., which was first conceived when a retired grandmother in Hawaii, Teresa Shook, horrified by the election of Donald Trump, posted on a Facebook group that a march was necessary. By the next day, 10,000 women were already on board. The Women's March has now become the largest protest in U.S. history, with an estimated participation between 3.2 and 5.3 million people participating worldwide as President Trump was inaugurated. Our two guests today, Paolo Mendoza and Sarah Sophie Flicker, are two influential people behind the development of the Women's March into what has become a national socio-political powerhouse. Our guest will be with us shortly, but first, Erica, what is your take on the significance of the Women's March at this time in history? Well, I think the primary significance of it, looking back, is that it demonstrated the potential to create coalitions of solidarity that clearly resonated with millions of people living in this country and living abroad. And, of course, there was the massive participation um, at actually unprecedented levels in recorded U.S. history, at least, um, which demonstrated not just the latent capacity for mass mobilization, but also the willingness of people to engage in politics and in social change um, in a way that we just haven't seen before, um, and clearly in a way that they're willing to sustain over time. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about the massive amount of people who participated in the Women's March, people of all races, ages, and genders. And one of your most recent projects, alongside Jeremy Pressman at the University of Connecticut, is the Crowd Counting Consortium. And it has been tracking the amount of participants in protests around the country. Tell us more about why the size of protests matters and what the large number of participants in the Women's March tells us about its likelihood to be successful. Yeah, so numbers matter for, for a few reasons. The first is that um, they're able to create opportunities for tactical innovation. Um, when more people participate, it just raises the ability um, for movements to really um, pull on the creativity and kind of collective wisdom of, of large crowds um, to produce new innovative techniques that allow them to stay on the, the offensive more than being in full reactionary mode at, at all times. And so I think you see that in many of the 
um, the activities that have taken place in the first 100 days where people are coming up with very creative and humorous slogans and the atmosphere is almost celebratory at many of these different actions in a way that kind of draws more people in and, and makes them feel like they're um, enjoying their agency. Um, the second thing that, that large participation can produce is um, a much higher cost to any kind of brutal suppression. So for example, um, in many different contexts around the world, when a large number of people uh, mobilizes, um, that makes it much more difficult for the opponent to manage using repression. It makes it much more likely that they have to make concessions or even ignore the, the demonstrations, which can really backfire for them. Um, and then the third thing that it does is um, it often elevates the visibility of the movement and its claims in a way that pulls in really vital third-party supporters. So, um, you know, this is going to vary case to case, but uh, it can result in the, the changing of loyalties, for example, of police or of politicians or um, business and economic elites or, or others that um, can then wield leverage um, where they sit uh, to create change. So, you know, large numbers create all kinds of political and social and economic opportunities that uh, smaller actions um, don't have available again, so, to them. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, social protest is in many ways both art and science. Would that be correct to phrase it like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think resistance, nonviolent resistance as a technique, um, has a lot of kind of artful elements. And one of them is simply coming up with messages and methods that resonate with popular participation at a given time, that pull people in, um, rather than discouraging them or making them feel as if, um, you know, it's sort of a doom and gloom moment as opposed to a moment where we can spread our wings and fly. Um, so, for example, um, there has been a lot of really creative art that's come out of, of um, these movements. Right now, there's been a lot of collaboration around um, music and, and other forms of expression that I think demonstrate that the movement has resonated um, with significant parts of um, the society beyond just your typical um, hardened activists. The Women's March definitely has resonated with people across the world and country. And one reason I think it has is because even in looking at the Women's March website, it states that every issue is a woman's issue. And this is critical in seeing women as central to all parts of society in the world, not just trying to relegate them to their particular sphere, but viewing organizing holistically has been a, a central facet of the women's March style of organizing, and it reminds me of a practice that my uncle Vincent Harding used to do. He's a late veteran of the freedom movement of the South in the 60s, and whenever he would go into a space, he would ask the question in getting people to introduce themselves, who's your mama's mama? And the point of that exercise as people go around and share their mama's mama, the grandmother, was A, to humanize the space, to take us beyond coming into spaces and approaching them from our trade and what we do, but also to recognize just that, that women have been critical in the development of families and society and humanity. 
And it's interesting to note that there were more people at the Women's March than there were at the inauguration itself. Yes, um, there are a lot of different estimates of how many people were there. Um, the Crowd Counting Consortium has a best guest estimate of about 4.1 million people um, that were just in the U.S. and then uh, over 300,000 abroad. Um, that was 654 cities in the U.S., 261 internationally. Um, so, you know, nearly a thousand different separate locations, um, ranging from one participant uh, all the way up to um, over a million in some places. So, so um, yeah, it was it was a huge contentious moment. And so the big question is, well, how did it become so big? Some people would put forward the theory that it was sort of like, um, you know, a cork popping off a, a bottle that had been shaking up for a long time. Um, other people have said, look, there were lots of people who had already bought plane tickets to Washington, D.C., and they didn't want to <laughs> um, get penalized for changing their plans, so they just decided to show up. But that doesn't explain then, of course, the, the huge range of actions outside of Washington, D.C., um, which was one of almost a 1,000 locations um, where these took place. So there are other explanations around just the gravity of the moment um, and the resonance of the moment to these um, really diverse populations around the, the country and the world. And there's also an argument that it was just well organized and that good organizing turns out huge participation numbers. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of different explanations. There, it could also be a combination of these. Um, but overall, I think the big question is, you know, since then, we've still seen more um, contention. We've, we've seen people not just stop, um, whether they're continuing to participate actively through other types of marches or the, the women's strike or they've become more involved in the sanctuary movement or they've joined Indivisible or, you know, there, there are all kinds of different ways that people are now engaging um, in the polity that were not happening before the women's march. And so for that reason alone, I think um, it, it demonstrates a, a really important moment in the history of, of our polity. Now let's turn to our guests, Paula Mendoza and Sarah Sophie Flicker, who join us by phone. Paula is the artistic director for the Women's March on Washington. She was recently named one of Filmmaker Magazine's 25 New Faces of Independent Film. Her feature documentary and short films, which have won various awards at film festivals around the world, explore immigrant stories and the problems surrounding deportation laws. Miss Mendoza was a two-time nominee for the Nalep Estelle Awards, given to Latino filmmakers that show extraordinary promise in the field of directing. And beside her is Sarah Sophie Flicker, a strategic advisor to the Women's March, an activist performer who founded the Citizens Board, which is a political cabaret group, has been raising funds and awareness for years. She also writes for several websites, including Rookie and Hello Giggles. She has conceptualized and directed videos in support of women's issues and collaborated with Liz Winstead, co-founder of The Daily Show, on the political advocacy group Lady Parts Justice, which focuses on women issues. Paola and Sarah Sophie, thank you so much for joining our show. Welcome. Now, Sarah, one thing you say in an interview in the Brooklyn Magazine is that you never wanted to do just one thing. You always gravitated towards film, fashion, art, politics, performing, and dance. And somehow in your mind, all of those things make sense together. And in the article, it alludes to a book called I Love Dick by artivist and writer Chris Krauss, who talks about this phenomenon. He calls it the and, and, anding of women and how our culture would rather reduce women to just one thing instead of 
recognizing their complexity. Tell us more about how your varied approach to life and activism plays a role in your organizing for the Women's March. So many people say one of the only silver linings of this terrible election and the administration that's in power right now is this you know, wave of engagement and activism and resistance. And I think that the only way that we won't exhaust ourselves, and you know, you hear people talking all the time about, you know, it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, and, and we like to add it's actually a relay race, is that by relay race we mean not only do you not have to show up for everything, but you have to be creative about the ways that you show up. So, you know, when it comes to the creative resistance, we really feel that, you know, in many ways, you know, a march or a sit-in or a protest of some kind may not win over the hearts and minds of people who are firmly, like, against whatever it is you're advocating for, but culture and art can be that. And, um, and, and not only can it be that, but it can be that, you know, in a sort of unconscious and subtle way, a way that really in, um, allows a lot of entry points for people at various levels. And it also brings some joy into the resistance. And, you know, I do think that's a really important way that we won't exhaust ourselves completely over the next however many years. I really resonate with what you say about the creativity and the joy that that is being brought to protest and you all have done such an amazing job with that. Paola, uh, you you are a brilliant filmmaker. Uh, Andre Nos has been recognized by all kinds of award agencies as now a classic film. In what ways have you brought this artistic gift of storytelling into your organizing with the Women's March? Thank you for your kind words. You know, as an independent filmmaker, it's always a, a nice, it's always heartwarming to hear people actually see your movies. So thank you <laughs> for that. Um, with regard, I did. It was it was it was amazing. Thank you. Moving. Thank you. It was a, a film that we put our heart and soul into, and very similarly that we put our heart and soul into obviously the women's march. And so, when I came into the women's march, um, I was a friend of Carmen Perez, who was one of the co-chairs of the march, and I just hit her up and I was like, you know, I just got to get down with you. Like it was a week after the election. I had been talking to my friends, my arts, arts community, talking about like what, what we were going to do as artists, how were we going to move the needle, what was different in this world, just starting to organize artists. And then I heard this Women's March thing was happening. I called Carmen up, and I was like, let me get down with you. And she said to me, come and work on partnerships with me. Um, you know, we have to get 500 partners on board for the Women's March because Dr. King and Bernice King got um, – 500 partners for the March on Washington, and we wanted to get that same amount of number numbers, and so it was a huge feat. And I was like, okay, no problem. I, I myself, my work specifically deals with immigration, so I knew all the immigrants' rights organizations, um, and that's where I started off at first. And then it kind of spread to all of the partnerships and just working right hand hand in hand with Carmen. And in that, I started to recognize that the story was getting lost. Like, what was the story that we were trying to tell, and 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 how are we going to get the story across? So, and in that time, Sarah Sophie came on board as well, and we started really plotting and, and, and planning 
the storytelling aspect of the Women's March because we knew that if we were able to engage people on the story, then their hearts would be engaged. So we did simple things. At first on our, on our Instagram feed, we started telling the stories of each individual organizer so people could see who was telling, who was making this march happen. We started bringing in news crews um, and doing uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries. We started doing photojournalism. We started um, telling stories on social media, so it wasn't just, you know, uh, shouting out things that we were doing, but what was the story we were trying to, to get across? Who, who were the people that were being affected by the issues? Facebook Live was a really big thing for us, and, and I feel our most successful Facebook Lives were actually when people were able to tell their stories. So, and then when we, were, when we um, programmed the actual rally the day of with the speakers, the way in which we made our decisions it was, a, it was a variety of things that we were thinking about, um, but also, ultimately, it was what is the story we are trying to tell to the nation. Everyone was criticizing us or wasn't understanding, like, if, if, if this is a woman's march, why are you talking about criminal justice reform? Why are you talking about immigration rights? Why are you, you not just talking about reproductive rights? Reproductive justice is a woman's issue. That's what she should stick to, which obviously was exactly the opposite of what we were trying to say and what we were trying to do. And the way in which we presented the story of struggle and the story of activism and the, struggle and the story of change to the world was our platform at Washington, D.C., all the speakers that we had in diverse in age and gender and, and ethnicity and ideology to say this is the America that we want and this is the story of America that we want to uphold and this is what we're fighting for. So story was central to the Women's March um, and I think it was also central to the success of the Women's March. Fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, both of your introductory comments. Um, and kind of building on that, uh, Paula and Sarah-Sophie, can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about creating and sustaining solidarity among this very diverse coalition that is kind of, as we speak, being formulated and and how that's going to be sustained over the long term? I'll start this, Sarah-Sophie, and you can jump in at the end, but I think one of the, the instrumental um, building blocks for our organization and for the group of women that... that that came together essentially about 25 women that were most for the most part complete strangers and we came together to organize and build something and really build something under the pressure of history we knew this was going to be monumental we also our headquarters in new york were out of mr harry belafonte's offices which in of itself was just historic and we had mlk looking down at us and we had muhammad ali looking down at us and we had james baldwin looking down at us in pictures during the same exact during the time of the civil rights movement and so what we what we realized as groups of women is that we were constantly having what we called daring discussions and what daring discussions were were discussions that took courage to have them discussions where you felt a little bit uncomfortable because we were talking about race and gender and class and privilege and all of these things that for the most part, Americans like to shy away from. Um, I would say Americans of privilege like to shy away from. And we were asking women, strangers, to jump in and have these discussions because in order to create and build together, we had to do this. And it was really the, the foundation that allowed us to be successful and trust one another and also acknowledge the growth that we as individuals had to make, the growth that we as a group had to make, and the growth that we as a country had to make. And, and these daring discussions were critical and, and then, Sarah Sophie, you can go ahead and talk about what we're doing next because we, we realize 
how beneficial these during discussions were for us. Right, you know, and I, and I think, you know, the real, um, the, the thing I find the most joy and pride in when I look at what we've built and what we're building with the Women's March are these broad coalitions of groups that, you know, up to this point haven't always worked together. And, and I think when we talk about a women's movement or any kind of movement in the face of what we're fighting against right now, you know, it has to be intersectional. We have to work together, and the only way we can work together is to know each other, understand each other, and hear each other's stories and tell our stories. And the only real way to do that is to have these daring discussions. So in the spirit of the work we did and continue to do, and, and really, like, when you look at this nation and this world, really, like, how do we start healing these divides? I, re- I really do believe in, and to your very first question about, um, you know, how's a woman, a woman, or as women leading this movement, do we bring our whole selves? And I think part of it is is recognizing that unlike the toxically masculine administration we have in place, we move forward, um, you know, not only in these sort of like standard resistance kind of ways, but but by having conversations, and that the personal is the political, and that it's almost impossible to hate anyone's story, you know? So the Women's March and a a handful of us have put together, um, in partnership with the Women's March, a campaign called Daring Discussions, which we're launching on Mother's Day, and it basically is a toolkit on how to have these conversations with some really firm, simple guiding principles, which to me have almost become a meditation on how I move through my daily life, like be it with my kids or somebody, you know. Last night I had a big conversation with a woman um, who was actually um, helping be life all my kids <laughs> about socialism. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, life and this woman and I stayed up till late at night be life and kids and talking about socialism and coming from really different places. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, if that gives you any window into how we can get it done. But, um, but you know, <laughs> but so we're launching this this campaign on Mother's Day because on Mother's Day because we found this radical history of Mother's Day, which not too many people know about, which is that there was a nurse during the Civil War named Ann Jarvis who nursed both sides, you know, soldiers on both sides, and after the war. Um, she thought to herself, like, I know that we can nurture each other. I know that we can try to heal each other. You know, she just spent months and months and months doing that. So she started having uh, Mother's Friendship Days where she would invite mothers of soldiers from both sides to come and sit and talk to each other. And um, her daughter, you know, decades later, planted that as a seed for Mother's Day. And also in the spirit of uplifting what Gloria Steinem, who is an honorary co-chair on the Women's March, always talks about is mothering as a verb, now feels like the most important time for us to mother this nation and to nurture each other in, and to really ground ourselves in communicating with love. And, you know, I do believe that just as much as the huge marches and the, you know, um, huge marches and the sit-ins and the protests that you're seeing nationwide, you know, it also is going to take place personally in our kitchens and in our living rooms and on the street, you know, just one-on-one conversations. And we have to be really armed with the tools on um, 
how to be that. So that's that's the exciting thing that we're doing next on the cultural front, and we're pretty we're pretty jazzed about it. Yeah, and your listeners can go to daringdiscussions.com to download the web to the toolkit to see some videos to get inspired around and get some courage to have those daring discussions. Excellent. Um, we noticed too today that um, related to the the pledge of collective liberation, you've posted a, a toolkit as well um, that is really you know quite oriented toward different. Um, things people should know about civil disobedience and, you know, being arrested and, and the other items that come into play and practically uh, with demonstrating and, and engaging in sustained civil resistance. So one of the questions I have around that is, is which historical examples or, or other kind of resources have you drawn upon um, in conceptualizing and organizing um, the resources that you're putting out? Uh, Paolo was on a panel with uh, Brittany Cooper last week, and, and she made the excellent point that, you know, the Women's March and all the protests and marches that you're seeing moving forward since um, Inauguration Day are all really grounded in taking their cues from Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and so that's a huge influence on us. I mean, they've been out on the streets for years now, and, you know, it, in a lot of ways, just feels like uh, um, a real continuation of their great work, um, you know, as well as, you know, Teen Vogue, actually, as we know, a great leader in the resistance, um, put out an excellent video in collaboration with the Women's March about, um, you know, all the various, you know, everything from the great, we, we really looked, you know, it depends what we're doing. So when we launched the A Day Without a Woman's Strike, we really looked to everything from the, um, the, the bus boycotts and the the great boycotts, you know, in California and, you know, I really, and, and yes, and, and the huge 19, it was the 75, I think, um, huge walkout and uh, strike in Iceland, the women's strike. Um, you know, so when you start looking throughout history, there's just, you know, a multitude of great examples. And, you know, we stand on all these great champions shoulders and certainly that was never more you know we we were very much grounded in that working out of Mr. Belafonte's office and having you know Gloria Steinem come in and talk to us a few times and um so you know probably want to add to that I think you summed it up brilliantly (laughs) she did and it's it's been amazing to watch uh the women's marches grow and to uh, have, have started as just an idea that uh, an elder had and Teresa Shook who posted on Facebook into now this national powerhouse. And I know there's been learning moments along the way, uh, beginning even with the very name of, of the Women's March. Could you tell us more about uh, what you've learned along the way, uh, good and bad and everything in between? Um, I mean, there's been so much that I've learned, right? There's been, before the Women's March and before the election, I was an artist and my work was rooted in social justice issues that I myself have never organized, literally on the streets. Um, so there's been the physical act of just learning. And, you know, ironically and funny enough, when you make movies, it's actually very similar to organizing. So the skill set translates pretty perfectly right over. 
Um, but nonetheless, like understanding what that skill set can actually do. Um, so from just practical terms, um, with regards to organizing, I think also this idea of um, really grounding yourself in love, which is one of our first principles in varying discussions and understanding that intellectually is one thing, but really trying to apply that um, when we're in conflict, um, when we're in conflict, not only with ourselves, because I would be lying to you to say that we're a happy, perfect family and there's never conflict. There's conflict, of course, like there isn't any, any healthy family, um, but the conflict is around this idea that we cannot have Donald Trump in power um, because he is hurting our communities. So um, grounding myself in love with to strangers and really, um, and with that as well, is also the actual power of the word love. So after the election, I was as devastated as everyone else that didn't vote for Trump was. Um, and what I came to realize through many tears and much, much frustration, the one thing that got me up and got me out and got me moving and got me working was love. And it was love for my community. It was the idea that I didn't have the luxury to stand back and just watch my community be ripped apart and destroyed and have parents stolen from their children as they're being deported, that the love for my community was stronger than the heartbreak and the despair and the rage that I felt. And that was an important lesson because I also think that this idea of being tired and that we have four years of this and we're only past, you know, 115 days and how are we going to maintain, how is the resistance going to maintain when we're just angry and looking for justice. And I had this realization just last week that, that if, if we are actually part of the resistance and in the resistance because of love, then that idea of being exhausted and tired and burning out seems to dissipate. It doesn't seem so, so, so fraught because loving, we don't get tired of loving. You know, I love my four-year-old son and even through all of my physical and mental tiredness, I still love him and I'm still able to get up because of love. So I feel like if we're able to understand that and, and flip our mind that in this resistance, it's out of love, then the four years don't seem so daunting. Um, and, and that has been, I think, the biggest lesson that I only recently came upon, probably two or three weeks ago, was the importance and the power of love. So in terms of uh, tactical adjustments or lessons that you all have learned about methods and tactics, um, either in organizing or in actually engaging uh, in resistance actively, um, what would you want other people to know about um, the tactical adjustments that you've made or that you've discovered were necessary under different types of situations um, so that they could apply lessons in their context as well? I mean, I'll just speak to it quickly and then I'll let Paula take over. But like the one thing that we like to remind everyone is, you know, is first of all, there's no right way to do it. And every day is like being shot out of a cannon and you're just, you know, and we're all just reacting and, and trying to both react and then put out positive actions, you know, as well. Um, you know, as a mom, I like to tell people, you know, you know, I, I think it's important because so many people, you know, are, are new to are new to activism, are new to the resistance. 
it's important, you know, and I mostly say this to women, but really for everyone, you know, people know how to do this, you know, and and it's and it's okay to be creative in um, in your tactics and creative in your resistance, and you can look to like the great organizations, you know, like the Women's March, like Indivisible, like Sister District and Swing Left and Knock Every Door, you know, for for really great tactical actions, but also like be creative and create your own. You know, if you organize the bus to go march on Washington, if you've organized, you know, a kid's birthday party or a dinner party, you know, we, we know how to, we know how to organize. We know how to do this stuff. Um, you know, Paula and I last weekend there ended up, we couldn't get to DC for the climate march. There ended up being no climate march in New York. So we got all the kids together and held a huge bake sale and raised, you know, $300 for the NRDC and Earth Justice. And I think, like, in the in the long term, like, our kids had a great day. They felt like they were doing something, and um, they learned a lot, and they thought a lot about the environment, and they were getting questioned, you know, by all their customers, and, and we brought joy to the people, you know, walking past us on the street. So I always like to say, you know, that there's that great roomy quote that there's a hundred different ways to kneel down and kiss the ground, and I think the same is true for this moment in time. Um, and... You know, and also I like to say that the Women's March, you know, we came together as strangers, not just around 25 national organizers in New York, but, you know, over 75 state organizers and, you know, scores more of global organizers not knowing each other. We focused on this one day for 10 weeks, and then we are a new organization as well. So we're all learning, we're all making mistakes, there's no right way to do it. Um, and, and we're learning every time we have a successful action and every time we have a less successful action. I think one of the things which is more difficult to to teach, but I think it's, an, it's, it's critical to, to start to hone that skill, is being able to feel the pulse of your country, being able to feel the pulse of your city, of your town, of your community. You know, the Women's March, Teresa Shook put up that Facebook page out of her own rage, and she tapped into the pulse of a nation. And that's why the Women's March became what it became, because we were the shepherds of energy. We were the shepherds of a pulse, right? And we were able to capitalize on that. Um, But nobody came out to the Women's March because of the leaders of the Women's March, right? They came out because of the pulse of what they felt. And so I think as we as, we as an organization move forward and we as an organization um, are, are, are adjusting to this administration, it's, it's being able to feel that pulse. And, and we might be working on an action and then something happens. And so the question always is, and we learn and sometimes we're successful and sometimes we're not, do we turn to the left and take on that ta- that that issue that just came out? Like let healthcare as an example, right? So, so do we adjust our tactic, our, our action for today based off of healthcare because that's the pulse of the country right now? The pulse of the country is the repealing of the Affordable Healthcare Act, and and what does that do to the community and to the people? And so, how is it that we're able to to push people? I personally see the Women's March as a as a as a organization that can push 
energy and people towards something. Uh, Drop O'Reilly, the hashtag Drop O'Reilly, um, we were, the Women's March was very active in pushing that hashtag and starting a campaign where women shared their stories, thousands of women shared their stories online around sexual harassment, all under the hashtag Drop O'Reilly. That was fueling the pulse of the country and where we were, and lo and behold, two and a half weeks later, Bill O'Reilly was off the air because of us, because of Color of Change, because of Ultraviolet, because of all of the organizations that had been working to get him off of the air. Um, and we did it in two and a half weeks. So I think that that, that is a skill that one hones. That is a skill that like you, you feel in your gut. And then, then as an organization, you have to move forward or not, like when you fail or when you succeed. Um, so it's something that we're learning, and I think – that, that it's something that everyone, no matter what level they are in their activism, whether they're just beginning or they're experts, um, can always still strive to improve. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And thanks um, so much for joining us. I know uh, you're in the midst of a lot of responsibilities, and it's just been wonderful having you. Uh, what's next for the Women's March? Well, you definitely should look out for Daring Discussions. Go to daringdiscussion.com um, on Mother's Day, and you can download that. Um, we're just wrapping up our hundred, our tenth action for in 100 days, um, and right now, you know, I always like to remind people, as Sarah Sophie alluded to, we're a three-month-old organization, and we have been in 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 actions um, for the past three months. So once this 10th action closes and we're going to be launching during discussions. We're really going to take stock as an organization and um, get our house in order and come out in the next month um, with a whole new plan and a whole new vision. I shouldn't say a whole new vision, continuing our vision um, and really hitting the ground running for the fall. Um, But our focus as an organization is definitely 2018 and 2020 and seeing how we will be moving energy and people towards those elections. And when can we look out for your next film? Man, I'm dying to make another movie. <laughs> Once I don't know. I, I tell myself every day that I'm going to let myself write something, and I never do because I'm all wrapped up in this resistance. Um, soon, soon. There's a, there's a movie brewing for sure. Got it, got it. Well, thank you both, Sarah, Sophie, and Paola. We'll, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, we, we are with you in spirit. And thanks for joining our podcast. You, you two have a good day. Thank you. You too. The Anatomy of Resistance is brought to you by the Fellowship of Reconciliation. We would like to give a special thanks to the University of Denver for giving us space to record. Thank you to Abigail Gibson for technical assistance. And thank you to Gina Janone, who has tirelessly worked behind the scenes to produce this podcast, as well as Anthony Porch, local MC in Denver for the Beats. Until next time, this has been the Anatomy of Resistance. Men teaching their kids walk on the other side. When they see 5-0, 9 out of 9 times, I ain't fronting. It's really something. Our lives different. It's not a weapon. I'm trying to paint us a bigger picture. I'm not a threat. Just a big bro to my little sister. Somebody love me. You got to trust me. I'm hoping you ain't taking this from me for thinking that I have freedom. Freedom to write and be who I am. And to end this episode, we leave you with clips from the historic moment of the Women's March. Mr. Trump, we refuse. No hate, no bigotry, no Muslim registry. We in Berlin know that walls don't work. We demand an end to the systemic murder and incarceration.
incarceration of our black brothers and sisters. We rise.